You are listening to the Devoted Women's Podcast. This teaching is meant to be listened to after having completed the lesson in your workbook. We hope this teaching equips, encourages, and empowers you. Grace and peace. All right. So last week we left off with um, Peter and John before the council, right? Um, They were in prison and then... um, the council, the high priest, they threatened them and told them to stop um, declaring the name of Jesus, right? Stop declaring this new way. And and then we see the believers gathered together and in prayer, in this bold group prayer, and they prayed for boldness before these threats. And they prayed for courage to continue on in their mission. And they specifically asked God to continue in his healing power, to continue healing the people. They prayed specifically for signs and wonders. And and then we saw that the whole place where they were praying, it shook as if God was like, let's go. Right. And so this week we pick up in Acts um, chapter four, verses 32 through 37. And to start off, I just want to read the first part of verse 32. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So in our homework, um, it asks us to circle the word that best fit the description of the church that we see here Um at the beginning, right? At the beginning, whenever it's all getting going. And the word that most encompassed what we saw going on was unity. So I hope you all circled unity. The other ones weren't wrong, but truly the one that encompassed it all was unity. So this unity is actually a reflection of what God had intended for the Israelites as a community from the very beginning when they were given the law. And even more so from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Those two were created for first union with God, but also with each other. God created us to be in union with him and with one another. So in Deuteronomy 15, we read about the sabbatical year of release as described in um, in the law that I was just talking about. And it paints a picture for us of liberation of the poor from any debts. And it states that there shall be no poor among you. And it goes on to describe how if each person was to look at, at his needy brother, brother or sister, and if they were to give charitably with a willing heart, that they would be blessed. Jesus reinstates this kind of thinking in Luke 6.36, whenever he says, give and it will be given to you. Um, Good measure, poured out, shaken together, pressed down for the measure that you use will be given back to you. And so we see that this idea of being blessed when we give isn't not necessarily like if you give a hundred dollars and Jesus is going to give you 200. That's not what he's talking about. You're going to reap a blessing, a blessing that could be tangible and it could not be. It could just be a blessing for your heart to give and help. And so in Deuteronomy, it goes on to say in verse 11 that there's never going to cease to be poor in the land. And, um, He says, therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. In other words, God is saying, give, give, help those who need it. Um, Or as we like to say in our day and age, see a need, 
need a need, right? It's not super complicated. It's a very basic law. Like there shouldn't be any poor in the land. There's gonna be, but there shouldn't be, especially not um, within the community of God, right? But this command to care for their neighbor in need had seemingly got pushed to the side in the community of Israel. As we have already read, um, the religious leaders, they should be facilitating caring for the poor. But in the Gospels, we read over and over again, they were more concerned with like keeping the law to a, t- to a T and whether it was right or wrong to heal somebody on the Sabbath instead of just rejoicing in the miracle of God before their very eyes. They were very concerned with doing things um, right or wrong. So last week we read about the lame man and Angie and her teaching actually took us to John um, and pointed us to the pool of Bethsaida where those in need, whether it be spiritually, financially, or physically, those people in need were countless and they were just waiting for their moment to jump in that pool, right? To, to have some healing happen. So if you actually go and flip through the Gospels even, you're going to see Jesus encountering the poor and the powerless over and over again. So just as it reads in Deuteronomy, there is no shortage of poor people, whatever their poorness looks like, right? Whether it's monetarily or physically or spiritually, the poor abound. And among God's people with this clear direction from the law that there should be no poor among you, right? Let there be no poor among you. Should there have been this many? And I want to say probably not. I want to say that they probably were lacking in um, following through on this specific command from God. But in God's new and fast growing community, not anymore. Not anymore. Through the power, presence, and direction of the Holy Spirit, we read for the second time now, the first um, being in chapter 2, verse 44, that the church of Jesus had everything in common. They had everything in common. So I don't know about you, but when I start started reading this, and even whenever I've read it a long time ago, I start to ponder what's going on here and like what it would look like to live in this situation. And... It always kind of sounds like these people gathered up to live on a commune to me. Like, that's just where my mind goes, right? Because that's like the most relevant thing I can think of. Um, And in fact, historically, that's not what happened. Just, we're going to clear that up. But in fact, historically, a lot of naysayers, they point at these passages and they try to call it early communism. And... That isn't the case at all, because A, first of all, the giving that was taking place here was completely voluntary. There was no government or system or kind of understood rules of the group, like it would be in a commune, um, telling them to give, right? They took everything that they wanted to according to what they felt they needed to do, right? And whenever that happened, all that was distributed was as any had need, as we read. We even see Peter point out this reality later in 5.4. In that passage, we'll get there. That's a fun one. Um, Secondly, we see that these people still had homes. Like we're told, like they're selling homes, they're selling lands, but they still had homes. Um, As we're going to read later, in the entire New Testament, but even in Acts, that these early churches were meeting in their homes. Um, in all reality, like these people couldn't just 
abandon everything life demands, right? They still had families, they still had jobs, they still had to care for themselves, but for everyone else as well that were under their household. Um, so they still had very much ordinary rhythms of life, right? It was just a little different now that Jesus was in the picture. So the donations, like I was talking about, that was laid at the apostles' feet, they weren't necessarily com considered community property, like a commune would be, where my brain goes to, but they were distributed as people had the need. So it was kind of like a storehouse, really, if you think about it. And in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 9 through 15, Paul actually instructs us, instructs us in how we should give. And he says that to give generously means to give from your abundance. It's made clear that giving shouldn't be a means of easing someone else's burden only to create a burden on you, right? It's not to create dependence um, in another system, right? It's, it's voluntary, voluntary and out of abundance. So it just wouldn't make any sense for me to give everything away, and then now I'm the one in need, right? God still has this system where, where it's designed where we can continue to help, where he continues to pour in us to pour out. So um, the reality is that we should be compelled to give from the abundance of all that God has given us and recognize that it never was ours to begin with never is ours to begin with. We have more than enough. God has given us more than enough. And so that means we have more than enough to share. For the early churches here, those selling land and houses, perhaps they were second houses, extra homes, maybe they were extra servants' quarters that could be consolidated or something, I don't know. Um, but those giving the proceeds of what was made from um, a particular harvest, was all given away for the greater good of the community at large and for the glory of God. And what we see really that was going on here was the orchestration of the Holy Spirit reorienting the believers' hearts and souls to what really mattered. And that is the building of the kingdom of God, where there is no lack. There is no lack for anyone. Love abounds and is poured out equally. There are no poor and there are no powerless. The kingdom of God where there is perfect unity. So like I think, tend to think the early believers weren't a bunch of hippies abandoning the real and the mundane of ordinary life to hold hands and throw the gospel around out of their hand woven baskets. No. They were of one heart and soul because God was and still is fulfilling the promise that we find in both Jeremiah 30 to 39 and similarly in Ezekiel 11:19. In these passages, we see God promising um, in Jeremiah. He says, behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my and in my wrath and in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and I will to make them dwell in safety. So we've already seen that. We've already seen the reversal of Babylon, right? or the reversal of Babel whenever God spread out and confused their language. But we're also seeing a reversal of Babylon when they were exiled, right, from, from Jerusalem. So we're seeing that God is drawing them back in, and now he's making them to dwell in safety. And what does it mean to be safe? It means to have love, to have food, to have shelter, our basic necessities in life met, right? And that's what's taking place here in the church. Everyone is now safe, safe and taken care of, where before there were poor and powerless and destitute, right? 
they're, they're equaling the playing field here for one another. Um, Jeremiah 39, 32, 39 goes on to say that I will give them one heart and one way. He's using the same language that we're seeing in our text here. One heart, one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. So we see God has good things in mind for us, right? And we're seeing again this picture of unity. And Ezekiel um, eleven nineteen it says, and I will give them one heart, again, the same language. And really, if you go read these two passages, they echo each other big time. It says, I will give them one heart, and here's an important um, part, and a new spirit I will put within them. We now have the Holy Spirit. It says, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That heart of stone that was not compelled to give to the poor and the powerless, to their brother and sister in need, is now softened and has the same ideals in mind that the heart of God has, right? Um, we now care about what he cares about, and that's everyone. And he goes on to say that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. What rules? That one from Deuteronomy 15 they've been neglecting, right? Um, and they will obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And that is the very thing we see taking place here in Acts. And then continued on in the Jeremiah passage in um, chapter 32, verse 40, he says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. This part is so important. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. So now we see the heart and soul of God joined with the heart and soul and unity within the believers. And we just have this big, beautiful picture of God's family within his kingdom, right? So these people, they recognize that they were the new covenant community that God was talking about all those years ago through the prophets. And they were taking their roles in it very seriously. To believe in Jesus as Messiah is to believe that a new way of living has come where all is set right and the playing field is equaled. A kingdom of citizens and saints that says, come one and all and receive your new status as a child of the king. There is more than enough here, right? We see that unfolding. Gives me chills. So there is a new concept and a new reality coming into play amongst the believers. And... This is the very reason that we're starting to see the religious leaders provoked to anger yet again, just as they were with Jesus, right? It's happening again. The establishment of this new kingdom means that the old one is being torn down. The temple for the Jews was the center of everything, of worship, of communal prayer, of sacrifices, like all of what was um, commanded of them centered around this place because that is where the presence of God was, right? And now with this new way, it was being deconstructed with the establishment of a new one, except this new temple wasn't a physical building. Rather, it was in within the heart and souls of all of the believers. Just as God dwelled within the inner sanctuary or the Holy of Holies, which was in the temple. Um, whoa, where am I? Sorry. 
When we surrender to God and we submit to him as Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within our inner sanctuary. And he takes up this new residence in our holy of holies, right? And now that's not limited to a single place and it's accessible to all. And it's spread throughout the whole world. Isn't that amazing? When the veil was torn as Jesus breathed his last, the presence of God was resituated in the world to the humble and lowly hearts of those who believe in him. Paul poses a question in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, when confronting the church at Corinth on their sin, he asked, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, who you have from God, this great, amazing gift, right? And you are not your own for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We are living, breathing temples of God. This new temple, this kingdom of God, this new way is different and it's better than the old. And quite frankly, as we saw with Jesus's life and all that he did and all that he's calling the believers to do right now, it doesn't make any sense from the outside looking in. It requires being all in. And in verses 36 and 37 of chapter four, we get yet another picture of this new reality as Luke introduces us to a major character to come in later chapters in Acts. This man is Joseph, and he's nicknamed Barnabas by the apostles. Luke includes the detail that his nickname means son of encouragement, and he lives up to it absolutely, which we will find more than fitting as we do read on later in Acts. He is the one to speak up for Paul when he has been converted, right? Everybody is scared to death of him. And they're like, whoa, who's like, who let him in the doors, right? And Barnabas steps up and says, he's been with Jesus. Jesus has made him new. He speaks up for him. And then he goes on later to be Paul's traveling companion on his first missionary journey. Um, He speaks up for, who is it? Whoever's with Mark, I can't remember his name. I think it's another B word, sorry. But he has a big role in the book of Acts, right? What? No. A B word, not P. Oh. <laughs> so, so we get a little glimpse into what it looks like to be all in through this example of Joseph, right? And moving on to chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we're going to see what disunity and its consequences looks like. And it's not good, you guys. Ananias and Sapphira. So I don't know about you. Every time I read it, every time I read it, I think I finally have a better grasp on it now, being on the other side of like studying it a little more in depth now. But as I read it and read it again, as our homework has us do, right? What all I could write in my margin was, this is seriously a hard section because it is like, It's hard to rectify what is going on here in these 11 verses in our mind. So this couple, they sold a piece of property and they kept back a portion of the proceeds for themselves. And then Ananias took what was left to the apostles and God's word here, the scriptures, Luke, make sure to let us know that they were both, him and his wife, were both willing participants um, in what was happening in this lie that was unfolding. 
And whenever Ananias goes to like, here, Peter, I sold everything and here's the proceeds, right? He takes this to Peter and then he's like on trial and Peter's grilling him left and right, like asking him all these questions, right? And condemning him basically. Um, And he's struck dead after being found out. It's super hard to rectify. Um, His wife then comes along three hours later, to which Peter questions her as well. And as planned, as they had talked about, right, she goes along with a lie and bam, she's dead too. Like, bam, bam, took care of this issue, right? So initially, like I was thinking, I'm just going to kind of skim over this because it is hard and like they get it, right? Don't lie, don't sin, or God might kill you dead. But no, <laughs> it's a little deeper than that. And fortunately, like for us, this is the only account where this happens. Like God didn't make it a habit of like striking people dead for their sin and their lies in the new covenant. We see it happen a lot in the Old Testament, right? But um, fortunately, it's not his go-to punishment. But... There are a few things about this passage that I do want to point out. And first of all, it's the sin that they committed wasn't that they didn't give all the proceeds to the church. The sin was that they claimed to give all the proceeds. The sin was dishonesty. It was this big fat lie, right? And this phrase kept back in the Greek is nasfizo, and it's actually an an uncommon word within the Bible. Um, It means to put aside for oneself and to keep back, specifically in a selfish way. Like it has that selfish connotation about it in the original um, language. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, right? They had the Old Testament in their own language, which was Greek. This word nesphizo was used in Joshua 7, 1, concerning what Achan did in keeping back, again, the same concept, some of the spoils of war. And for him, the punishment was also death. So we see this kind of mirroring of what what God is doing here where this dishonesty is concerned. And this act committed both by Ananias and Sapphira and Achan, um, it came from a place of lack of faith and obviously just utter selfishness, right? So they had doubt and they had fear in their mind that they couldn't give it all, Right? What if, what if this thing completely fell apart? What if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead? What, what if, what if, what if, right? And the doubt and the fear that was motivating their scarcity mentality, this what if, this need to have a backup plan, right? That scarcity mentality, this idea that there's not going to be enough is in complete contrast um, with a kingdom mentality, And the scarcity mentality did not come from God. It came directly from Satan, as Peter tells us. So it's important for us to see how this passage is sandwiched in by passages of the work of the Holy Spirit. If you go look what comes before and after, it's all about the Spirit and all the crazy things that is being done through him, all the miraculous things. So just before this incident, we see this crazy picture of unity um, among the believers. And we see their bold prayer in the face of adversity. And we see people giving above and beyond for the sake of the church. And then after these verses, we read of the miraculous signs and wonders of healing and salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit in the apostles. 
And verse point, verse 14 points out more than ever, it says more than ever believers were added to them. So we're seeing like this huge contrast before and after of what it looks like to live in the kingdom, but then to also live according to the world and, and, um, how it looks like whenever Satan is ruling your thoughts, right? Ruling, um, your motivation and your actions. So the moment that Satan, who Jesus calls the father of lies in John 8, 44, the moment that he rears his head in the midst of God's people, it is a completely noticeable contrast. So it's important for us to see that it's a complete contrast to the work of God. So in verse four, Again, we see the voluntary nature in which this charitable giving was being done. Charitable in in the way that no one forced their hand to give. No one told Ananias and Sapphira like, hey, you got that extra property over there. You need to sell it and then you need to give it away. No one told them they had to do that. No one was forcing their hand. No one made them sell the land. And no one even said like, hey, you have to give it all. Like they could have just given a portion of it and said like, Hey, we sold this land and gave a portion of it. Right. God still could have honored that and would have honored that what they gave would have been more than enough. The fact is that they lied though. And the reality is they likely didn't want to stand out as those who weren't all in. They didn't want to be some of the ones who weren't giving it all up for Jesus. Right. Or vainly, they wanted the recognition and the praise for their giving. Like we just saw that was given to Joseph, right? They're like, oh, look at the praise that these people are getting that whenever they come and lay it all down there, they get a big old atta girl and a pat on the back, right? No, they wanted that recognition without the actually giving it all up part. So when we give above and beyond what we're called to do, And what I believe we're called to do is a tithe, right? That's 10% of our first fruits. It's an Old Testament um, law, basically, that you're to bring the first fruits of your harvest or whatever you do for a business or making money or whatever. You're you're supposed to bring 10% to God and give it to him. You're giving God back what's already his, right? It's kind of funny that he's like, hey, I'm giving you all this. All I need is 10%, right? Mm -hmm. So anyways, that's a whole other teaching. (laughs) But um, when we give above and beyond what we're called to do, which is our tithe, like I said, I believe, it should always be in obedience to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Not simply because everyone else is doing it or because you want the praise and you want the adoration or you want that ad girl like I was talking about. The Holy Spirit should be the only one leading us to do anything ever, really. Anything we just do, it should be under the direction of the Spirit and never man. Because as soon as we start trying to look like man, guess who we're going to look like? A whole bunch of sinners. Except if it's the man is Jesus, right? Who is God in the flesh. So if we're not doing it under his direction, we're doing it for the wrong reasons. So lastly here in this section, I want us to see that the sin that was committed was first and foremost against God. Peter says in verse four that you have not lied to man, but to God. And he tells Sapphira that she with her husband had agreed together to test the spirit. So... 
This comment is thrown in and worded in such a way that it should make us realize once more that the Holy Spirit is in fact, God. And as we are told over and over in the Old Testament, we are not to put God to the test. He is all-knowing, and nothing goes unseen within us or without. And nothing goes unpunished either. There are consequences for our sin, even though we are blood believers of Jesus, right? There are still real consequences for our sins on this side of salvation. And in this case, it was immediate and it was serious. They died. That is the punishment God had for them. And we see that great fear came upon the whole church. And I don't know if you called this all who heard of these things. So not only was this great fear of God put on the church, but also those on the outside looking in. So anytime we see this fear of God, and we always like to cover this because it's so important. When we see the fear of God, that comes upon people in response to a manifestation of his spirit and his working, um, we always see that it is first and foremost a response of reverent awe before a holy God. It's us looking back and like, whoa, you are God and I am not, right? And you are worthy of praise and adoration for who you are. That is a healthy, reverent fear of God. But fear of God is not without a good, healthy amount of fear that we're used to that makes us tremble in our boots because of God's displeasure and his discipline um, whenever we sin, right? God is great and he is mighty and he puts us through in our place through his majesty, but he is also just and he is full of wrath and more than capable and can and will strike us dead if he so sees fit. <laughs> like just because he hasn't done it that we know of doesn't mean he won't and that he can't. So that is up to him, as we see here in these few verses. And it just makes me think, I don't take my sin seriously enough. I don't. I don't, because this could very well be my consequence, and I just don't know it, right? But And I'm taking advantage of grace whenever I commit the sin, thinking, oh, he doesn't do that anymore. I'm not saying he's not going to. And maybe I should check myself with that. And maybe you want to, too. I'll invite you into that there. <laughs> so the most important takeaway for this whole situation, though, is that we need to embrace the fact that holiness is not optional. I'll say it again. Holiness is not optional. If we are going to be and we claim to be the temple of the living God, just like we were talking about earlier, then we must submit ourselves to the spirit of God and then process and the process of sanctification in our lives. Without this submission and without God's living presence within us and without his guidance, we subject ourselves to creating division, just like Ananias and Sapphira were on the brink of doing. First, division between us and God, because we know that sin separates, right? But then also between our brothers and sisters on a horizontal level. And not only does it create division, but sin also has a devastating ripple effect. We've talked about this before in our teachings. Sin doesn't stop at us. It never does. And that is why I believe we see God putting like a major halt to what was taking place here. Because can you imagine if they would have got away with this? 
what it would have done. They would have gone over and told Billy Bob, like, hey, we really kept back some. Like, sell your field and give some of it, and you'll still have some security, right? And then there would have been another one, and another one, and another one. And it would have just been this huge ripple effect of sin rampant in God's community here. And that is not what he wanted. And so I think, I think that's why he dealt with it in this way. You can disagree with me, but that's my opinion here. <laughs> so truly, though, like I said, we see a lot of this in the Old Testament, these things that are really hard to wrap our mind and, and even our hearts around and, and how God chooses to deal with some things. Um, and all of them, all of them, whenever it's hard for us to understand and process, it should just always make us remember that holiness is not optional. Again, holiness is not optional. So moving on to verses 12 through 16. I'm glad that is out of the way. That was something. So we find out that the work of Jesus continued, right? The acts of Jesus continued. The miracles of Jesus continued. And the apostles boldly entered the temple with the gospel message on their lips. And believers were added, like I said, more than ever. And people were healed. And demons were banished. And... I don't know if you've noticed, but we stopped getting a head count of the numbers of believers that were added, which I think, and I didn't read this anywhere, it just kind of popped in my mind, but I think this is just a picture of the fulfillment um, of the promise made to Abraham that all of the families of the world would be blessed and that that number would be innumerable, right? More than the stars in the sky, more on more than the sand on the earth. Um, it can't can't be counted like we can't say and then another 2000 was added like we're to the point of extreme multiplication that is only done through the work of the holy spirit it's so good so we see that the work of jesus continued and just as jesus enraged the religious leaders so did the apostles so moving on to verses 17 through 26 we read on here to see that the high priest again with the sadducees they were now filled with jealousy. That's a new little detail we get. They have arrested the apostles and they have thrown them in prison. And this time it wasn't just Peter and John in prison, but all of the apostles, all of them. And in verse 19, it says, During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. So to me, this almost seems like a sweet reassurance from God, just in case fear and doubt were creeping in at this point for um, the apostles, because all of them were in there, right? No one on the outside had this special title anymore. Um, just like, okay, the work can continue on because John's still out there. No, they were all in there together. And they're probably like, oh no, like, what do we do? What is going to happen to us? I can just imagine where their brains were at um, as they were sitting there in jail together. And we see that God sends this angel and he moves on their behalf and is seemingly saying like, I'm with you. Like, I'm going to do this miraculous stuff you prayed for. I'm answering your prayers. Um, I'm going to make the way for this to continue on. And the angel commissions them again and says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Again, this is language that is leaning into the destruction of the old covenant temple. The angel pushes them back into the mission that no man can stop. They were imprisoned. Man tried to stop them and the angel pushes them back and says, speak the words of this life, this new way. 
they were to go into the old way of doing things, the temple, and they were to get right up in the middle of it and declare the way, the new way, the truth, and the life. That sounds familiar, right? That could only be found in Jesus. And we see that they do. And the very minute day breaks, they are there in obedience, proclaiming the gospel for all who are entering. Tons would have been entering to start the sacrifice process, right? And they were proclaiming the gospel for them to all hear. So then we see that the officers reported that the apostles were gone. I'm pretty sure they were like, oh, crud. (laughs) What is happening? They were nowhere to be found within the locked and secure prison. What in the world is going on? To which we read the religious leaders were not only jealous, now they're greatly perplexed is what the details we get. And they wondered what this would come to. So I kind of want to pump the brakes here and talk about the Sadducees. Um, I want to talk about these religious leaders and this jealousy issue that we are seeing that's arising in them, right? And this confusion that they're having. So I want us to get a clearer picture um, of these people that the apostles were up against. So they are the Sadducees, like we've read here and last week. And last week, Angie did point out the fact that this group of people specifically did not believe in the resurrection, right? That's important. And it is helpful to also note that the Sadducees were an aristocratic class of people who ran the temple and much of what happened in Jerusalem. So they tended to be very wealthy and they held powerful positions, such as we are seeing here with the high priest and and chief priest and, and the priestly family. They, they tended to be Sadducees. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about what, what they believed here in just a minute. So what I do want to point out, though, is that these people were the true minority. Like they were the minority amongst um, the Israelites, amongst the Jewish people. And the only way I can really think of to compare it, like the aristocratic group of people, like is the Queen of England, right? Um and her family and the wealth that they have. They had a way of living and wealth that was far beyond that of any of the common people. And they couldn't relate to the general population at all. And they liked it that way. They liked sitting up on their high horse, looking down at people and being the ones in charge and being the ones that get to say, go here and win, right? They liked their power. They liked their way of life. They liked their wealth. And in fact, they were actually considered more of a political group, more than a religious one, due to the fact that they often and more than often sided with Rome and its demands whenever they would impose taxes and they would impose certain laws. They sided right with them to buddy up to them so that they wouldn't lose their way of life no matter what it did to the, to the man on the, that's lower on the totem pole, right? So when it comes to the council, and in your Bible, you might also refer, see it referred to as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin means the council. Those two words are interchangeable there. Um, the council that the apostles were about to sit before, they held the majority of the seats. So there was only a certain amount of seats. And whenever it came to the officials that occupied them, they were mostly Sadducees. They were mostly these people who couldn't relate to the general population at all. And this council acted as both a judge and jury to um, the public for legal and both civil matters. So 
Not all priests, though, were Sadducees, but many were. Many um, clung to this way of life. They clung to this way of living and, and the beliefs that they held. So when it came to decision-making, though, on behalf of the common people, the Sadducees would often have to side with the Pharisees um, for certain things because the Pharisees were actually more popular with the general public. And honestly, the Pharisees actually held a more true um, belief of the law, where the Sadducees had some way crazy stuff. Um, And we're actually going to see the Sadducees siding with the Pharisee at the end of our lesson today. So when it came to the Bible, and this is where we're going to talk about a little bit what they believed, they did hold to the preservation of the authority of the written word of God. But as far as their doctrine or what they believed about scripture, the Sadducees were completely off base in a few key areas, and they had major contradictory errors in their interpretation. So first we see that, um, like we've already noted, they didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. Jesus did that. (laughs) Jesus resurrected from the dead. Secondly, we see that they denied the afterlife. They believed that the soul perished and therefore denied that there was any penalty or reward um, after an earthly life. Well, we've already seen Jesus was resurrected and he lived, right? And he ascended back to the Father and he invited other people, all of the people, into that life. He invited them into the resurrection. He basically invites us into the afterlife, right? And we're told clearly in scripture that without him, you perish. And with him, you are rewarded an eternal life. This is a problem for their beliefs. Thirdly, we see that they denied the existence of a spiritual world. They denied angels. They denied demons. I think they even denied like heaven, right? So an angel literally just released these people from prison. They, now, they didn't know that, right? Like, they had no clue. But we see the proof of that. And even in the Old Testament, like, we have this mention of angels, so it's weird for me that they didn't believe that. But um, they would have had to think, because they are confused and perplexed, and like, what's going to happen with this? Like, something spiritual was taking place, right? And they would have heard of people being healed and cleansed of demons left and right, first with Jesus, but now in the continuance um, through his followers. Again, this is controversial to what they say they believed. And lastly, the Sadducees were extremely self-sufficient so far to the point of denying God's involvement in everyday life. In other words, they were so full of pride. They had the law and keeping it to a T so figured out that and thought they had things under control. They, they didn't need God in the everyday, right? Isn't that so sad? And for us, for those who trust in Jesus and receive the very spirit of God, making him we, well, when we trust in Jesus, we receive the Spirit of God, and that makes Him very much involved in our day-to-day lives. And humbling ourselves before Jesus is a key component to receiving salvation. So trouble was brewing for this class of people, and they didn't like it one bit. Every bit of the good news was, in fact, bad news for them and for their current reality. And it was a threat to overturn their way of life completely. So in verse 26, we actually see their hearts for what they really were. They were full of the fear of man and not God. The apostles are detained yet again 
but we get this detail not with force so that they wouldn't lose their lives because the people really liked the apostles and all the healing and all this invitation into God's goodness, right? The complete opposite of what they were receiving from these leaders. Their minority status was no longer um, panning out very well for them. I promise I'm going to move fast. I have like a page left, okay? (laughs) Hang with me. It's getting good. So verse 27, it says, When they had brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Again, a testament to this extreme multiplication that's happening. It says, And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They were so quick to get Jesus to the cross, and now they're like, We had nothing to do with it. Like, what? And then verse 29 says, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. And this is just an echo of Peter in 419, where he insists, as he did before, are we to obey God or you? And the answer is obvious. They're going to obey God. And for the religious leaders, it means that they also must choose to believe in this new way. Um, If they were to embrace um, this message of the gospel and they would have had to embrace this message all the way back to when John the Baptist came on the scene saying that the kingdom of God was on the way. This was either true or false. And despite everything that is laid before them, and they can't even like refute it. Like they don't have an answer. They can't prove them wrong, right? They choose not to believe. Um, And it's just so sad to me. And, um, So these people, the Sadducees, truly in their hearts, they felt that they were stirring up people against Judaism, which in fact they weren't. Peter goes on to say, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. Peter left no room for questioning that their God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the word that they knew so well was the very God that raised Jesus from the dead. He's saying... Make no mistake, this is not some different God I'm talking about. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the God of Israel. We're we're not leading people astray to some weird pagan God. Rather, we're actually being really deeply true to Judaism, right? To our Jewish beliefs. And they go on to say that... um, They hung him on the tree and God exalted Jesus to the right hand to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness a sin. And again, we see an argument for the deconstruction of the function and purpose of the temple. If Jesus can give repentance and forgiveness of sin, what use is the temple? Right? Not only does Jesus offer repentance and forgiveness of sin, but by pointing out that it is available to Israel, he's saying it's available to them too. And he implicates that they are in need of this repentance and this forgiveness. And is in fact calling them like chief sinners because they're the ones that put Jesus on the cross. So these people and their twisted Um, empty religion is quickly falling apart before this life and before this way that is proclaimed before them. And we see that um, again, they're proclaiming that there is this new way that God is among them and in their midst, that there is a new temple and these leaders, they were angry. And we go on to see that a Pharisee, Gamaliel, I'm probably not saying his name right, right? He goes on to point out that other other revolutionaries um, 
with a huge following, right? These people who had a potential to kind of throw down a system, they came to nothing and they dis they dissolved. And ultimately, they proved to be no problem at all. And he argues, which is so important here, um, he said, if it is man, it will fell. But if it is God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. This is someone sitting on that very council saying these words. They knew they had nothing to stand on at that moment. They were baffled, perplexed. They were confused at how and why all of this was happening. And they certainly knew they didn't have the favor of the people. And what they failed to recognize was they also did not have the favor of God. So they took his advice and they went on to beat the disciples. And this is no like simple beating, right? This is something that Jesus himself underwent. They could have received up to 39 lashes with a whip that had three whips on it. We don't, we're not told what they did, but it could have been as much as 39 um, according to what was allowed within the law. So... In 42, we read every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is Christ. They continued in the way, this new life, extending the temple with each new convert, with each new citizen of the kingdom. From references outside of scripture, it is believed that most of these men, most of these apostles went on to be murdered, murdered, martyred, <laughs> with the exception of John that's also murdered, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> and they gave it all up for the gospel, for this cause that they had been um, commissioned to. And as for the Sadducees, this is so important and so key here. We will read on that their jealousy and that their anger for the disciples of Jesus, it only grows. Like we're going to see that all throughout Acts and even the New Testament. But ultimately, as a group, they cease to exist. When? Does anybody know? Upon the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And guess who it was destroyed by? None other than those who they were trying to please most, the Romans. So to end, just really quick, I've just got two, like four sentences here. I just want to challenge us and I want to ask, are our lives a direct contrast to that of the world around us? Are we embracing our role as a citizen of the kingdom of God? Do we have one foot in and one foot out? Are we holding fast to our mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Are we embracing our individual callings, the big and the bold ones, but also the mundane and the necessary for the purpose of glorifying God in our lives? Do you remind yourself often that you are a temple of the living God, an access point for those who don't know him yet? God, we just thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, these examples. God, we thank you for the boldness of the apostles so that the gospel could have made it all the way to us. God, we thank you for your saving grace. We thank you for salvation. And we thank you for hope to press into another day. God, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.